welcome to part one of the fifth episode of Yunam News podcast series. Today, we are talking about microaggression against women at the workplace in conjunction with the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. My name is Hazira Adlina, Deputy Head of Department of Community Outreach and Collaboration at UNAM Youth. Now with us today, let us welcome our first speaker, Emilia Sharif, who is founder and managing partner of Speak Up Malaysia, where she founded it in 2020. Emilia Sharif is most known for her own work on the identification, investigation, prevention, and dealing with harassment and toxic environment at the workplace. She is also part of the team to draft and lobby for the tabling of the sexual harassment bill of the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development and the Attorney General's Chambers. Now moving on, it's our second speaker, Rizal Rosehan. Since 2015, Rizal Rosehan has worked for a human rights and even women rights NGO. Since 2019, he has also dabbled in social impact and development concerns. Apart from that, he is a vivacious individual who has been an outspoken spoker, supporter of gender equality since he minored in gender studies during his undergraduate studies at UM. The theme for UN's International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women this year is Orange the World and Violence Against Women Now. The color orange was chosen to symbolize a brighter future free of violence against women and girls, hence our posters which are um, orange colored. Gender-based violence is unavoidable despite its prevalence. It is possible and necessary to avoid it. Stopping this violence begins with believing survivors and even implementing comprehensive and inclusive strategies that address the root causes, change damaging social norms, and also empower women and girls. So welcome, Emilia and Riza. Thank you for joining us. Hey. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, great that you guys could join us for tonight. So now let's get into it. As you can see, microaggressions are small acts of prejudice that impact members of marginalized groups, but they can even compound up over time and cause more conflict and harm, especially to women. Could you uh, give us a more in-depth definition of microaggression? Uh, Maybe we can start with Emilia. Sure. Thank you, Hazira. Microaggression basically refers to common daily attacks um, that is directed towards a person or a group of of people. And these kind of attacks could be intentional or unintentional. That part doesn't quite matter. But the issue that we usually look at is how does these actions or behavior impact this person, right? So it could be something that creates a hostile um, negative environment, it could be something that makes this person feel threatened, or it could make this person, or it could just be something that is derogatory, it could be something that makes this person feel small. The reason why microaggression is a bit hard to tackle is because unlike things like sexual assault, um, it's quite hard to identify because it happens in a lot more subtle forms. Um, and like you said, of course, there's a spectrum and it can go, you know, it can include things that are more serious as well. But we, when we talk about the daily um, things that women face, 
um, the microaggression um, at any levels, be it in schools, in the workplace, or even in public spaces. Oftentimes, this includes acts that are small as well. Um, it makes this person feel like, mm, you know, this is not right. You shouldn't have said that to me. You shouldn't have done that. But it's quite hard to pinpoint what exactly was that and why it was, um, or, or, or what's the name of it, you know? Um, it may not be sexual harassment. It may not be, um, it, might, it might not be sexual assault. Um, so we don't, we, don't, we don't have like specific terms for it, which is why oftentimes we look at the impact that microaggression, um, you know, creates um, when it comes to, um, you know, the victim, the survivor, and the people at the receiving end. But just another thing that I wanted to highlight is microaggression, obviously, is not just something that women face. Um, it is something that a lot of, um, you know, marginalized communities and individuals within that communities, they also face microaggression. But I understand that the conversation tonight, you know, focuses on microaggression against women. Um, but I just thought that it would be, it would be um, nice to point out that, well, not nice, that's a bad choice of word. I think it would be something that I have to point out. You know, microaggression also happens in, in, in other contexts as well. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for that really nice um, information and even the way you pointed out that microaggression um, actually happens to everyone, doesn't matter who they are, right? So um, thank you. And Rizal, what is your take on it? Yeah, I think M has, has explained it in such a way that, wow, it's difficult for me to explain it in my way. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't want to be, you know, uh, talking over M. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wanted to try and uh, bring us to say like examples, right? Because my experience with um, microaggression is not so much as uh, someone who uh, suffers or someone who is a victim of microaggression. As a guy, I think I'm quite privileged at the workplace um, to not be subjected to microaggressions or even if I receive or I'm on the receiving end of a microaggression at the workplace, I wouldn't know. But um, it, 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 what it essentially means is it just didn't impact me uh, in terms of my uh, work place performance, you know, uh, in terms of my workplace dynamics with my colleagues. However, my experience with uh, microaggression is um, there, are, there are a lot of days, actually, not a few, but a lot of days where I go back home and then when I uh, reflect on the day, I feel like I didn't do enough to help people who were... Um, who were on the receiving end of microaggressions, especially uh, women at the workplace. And as M rightly pointed out, it's not only women at the workplace, it's also marginalized uh, groups at the workplace. So for example, if you work in a setting where um, there are mainly more Malays in, in that workplace, and then you find this odd one or two uh, people from different race, even myself, uh, Sabahan in a predominantly Malay workplace, it's at sometimes you will be subjected to microaggression. So what, what are microaggressions, right? Um, there are things 
these are okay how uh, these are insults sometimes insults that are meant to be as a joke meant as jokes so uh, sometimes uh, thinking back sometimes my colleagues would say you know Rizal you didn't do um, you did you weren't that assertive enough because you're Sabahan is it because you're Sabahan you're so mm -hmm. laid back you know so things like that is my progression even though we laugh at those jokes but uh, in a way it's it's a way to also make the receiver or, or yeah the receiver of microaggression feel intimidated to feel uh, like they are less of their colleagues so um, my experience again is more to like what did i do to help people um, who receive microaggressions and what do i do when there i am at that point where i receive microaggressions at the workplace I think um, in that sense, what I learned so far is, I think we are all still learning about what's, what are the boundaries at workplace, mm -hmm. like, um, especially when it comes to microaggressions, because these are, uh, these are acts of aggression that's so, so small that if you want to make it a big issue, it's uh, difficult, you know? Uh, because not many people would have the same uh, thought or same, uh, not many people will agree with you. Um, and then at the same time, it cannot continue because uh, like I said, the impact will be worse if you prolong the situation. Yeah, yeah definitely. I definitely agree with you where um, you said microaggression um, it happens in daily lives and it's very subtle. That's why uh, we need to keep talking about it so we don't normalize it so we can actually grow as a community. So uh, moving on, uh, Riza, what do you think um, the approaches or even the steps and advice do you think you should give when it comes to controlling microaggression in your experience with social impact or anything? Right, so um, I, I had the opportunity to host like men ally circles. I don't know mm -hmm. how, to, how to frame that. So basically, men who um, support gender equality, um, I help organize these men to, to kind of have a discussion, of, an honest discussion about, you know, where are we heading in uh, Malaysia? You know, being allies of uh, gender equality or feminist futures in Malaysia is not enough if, you know, we ourselves um, as men are not doing our part to, to uh, help other men improve themselves. You know, um, it's easy for men to say, um, think of it this way, it's easy for men to tell other men, you know, believe, uh, no, it's easy for men to say um, they support women, uh, gender equality, and they support women in political participation, for example, yeah. Um, it's easy for them to say that because it makes them look like a hero. But it's, what's not easy is actually for men to 
tell other men and say, hey, uh, can you check yourself when you uh, commit X and Y microaggression, for example? That's actually very, very hard. So that's very difficult because um, it comes with a loss of uh, privilege for that man who, who tells of other men, <laughs> you know? So um, I think my advice for um, to stop microaggression is um, for men to check themselves when they commit these three types that M mentioned earlier, which is um, micro uh, assaults, together, M. Micro yeah, assaults, attacks, insults, attacks, and yeah. invalidation. Uh, Yes, attacks, insults, and invalidation. Um, actually, um, thanks for pointing that out because for me, <laughs> yeah, it was very difficult to to try and frame them. But uh, once you put them into those three categories, uh, it makes it so much easier to um to in, to identify them. So similarly, from my side, I think I would just tell other men, you know, to. Um, to try and be more reflective of their actions because this is what I realize in a lot of men. They are not um, reflective of their own action. They, um, because of the way they are brought up, because of the way society um, tells them uh, of, on how to be a man, they don't necessarily take the time to reflect on their own action and to try and improve themselves. In, in fact, or instead, they try to become even more macho, macho or egoistic in their own ways. So um, I think, again, going back to my advice, it's to check themselves to be reflective of their own actions. And if, for example, one day they realize, oh, I committed um, microaggression. Um, first thing first is they need to try and um, apologize to the uh, to the person who they committed that, those microaggressions to and then try to find a way to uh, improve themselves by you know listening from the person who got uh, who were on the receiving end you know how to improve themselves uh, most the answers always at the people um, uh, almost always at the person who um, who are on the receiving end. So um, I guess that's my advice. Yeah, um, that's definitely true, Riza. I agree that we should, you know, in order to become allies, we should become more self-reflective and get in touch with our inner selves, like ask ourselves, oh, is this actually wrong? Is this microaggression? I should not do this. And, you know, um, reflect on our actions and all. So thank you, Rizal and Emilia. What 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 do you think about this? What what advices would you give? Um, thank you, Azira. Before I go on, I just want to say thank you so much, Rizal, for pointing it out. I really have to commend, um, you know, Rizal's effort. I mean, I've known about them for a while now that he has this, you know, feminist ally circles. Um, I think the great work. Um, Rizal is one of the very few men that I know that actually actively, you know, do something to be an ally. Um, it's commendable. And, you know, if, if there's any listeners out there who are men, um, you know, 
I, I'm promoting you, Rizal. Here. Please get in touch with Rizal. Yes, please. <laughs> please get in touch with us. He's definitely a good example. Yeah. And Thank after, you, Em. You know, how do you do this, you know, feminist ally circles? I think we need more of them. Um, and Rizal's very generous. So um, I think that's a good place to start for the listeners. But answering your question, um, what would I tell um, people who are going through microaggressions? Um, it's again, it's it's not something easy um, to deal with. Um, but the at the bottom of it, it's about standing up, right? Standing up for yourself, standing up for other women, or really standing up for anyone who are being subjected to microaggressions. In the workplace, standing up for another person is so important because a lot of the times when you are a victim of microaggression, it is sort of like a whole structure, um, a whole culture, a whole framework, a whole system against you, right? If someone make, a, you know, a, um, for example, micro insults, and if no one stands up and say, hey, I'm sorry, that's, that's not cool, you know, you shouldn't have said that, um, then really it's the victim against everyone else, is the victim against the world, you know, so to speak. And this could come in many forms, like, for example, people who are often interrupted in meetings, people whom ideas are dismissed, or people who are not included in, in, in social gatherings or even certain meetings. Um, it comes in so many forms in the workplace. Um, but ultimately, I think it's important to you know, stand up and say, hey, you know, I noticed that this is happening. Um, I want to say that I'm not comfortable with it or it's basically it's important to call out or call in depending on which one you prefer and then state that this is not okay for you right um enforce your boundary or state what you prefer and what you don't prefer um and this is important because we also need to give people the benefit of the doubt um not everyone who's committing microaggression actually knows that they are they're doing one or that they're causing harm um and that's like i said earlier on right it's not just something that is subtle but when it comes to microaggression and a lot of different types of violence against women and minorities um sometimes people do it un unknowingly because you know we come from our own you know culture we have our history we have our religion we have our tradition so sometimes we have this embedded deep-rooted indoctrinated kind of values and system that we believe in and we don't even realize that you know these things are bad because we don't question question them right they are passed from one generation to the next and to the next and to the next so sometimes people don't realize but so pointing it out reinforcing or restating your boundary can help explain to the other person that well number one it enforces your boundary but secondly it explains to this person it is not acceptable and that they shouldn't do it either to the victim directly or to anyone else for that matter so I think that's why it's really important to have that kind of intervention that Riza also talked about right for someone to basically say hey that's not okay check your privilege um, if, if, if someone looks uncomfortable or if they point it out so my advice would always be stand up and say something. If it's too hard to stand up alone, um, some of the things I used to do that I used to practice is I will find an ally 
um, at the workplace. So for example, I know that in this meeting, uh, I feel quite intimidated to speak up because maybe my ideas are dismissed or maybe because people talk over me. I will say to maybe person A and person B like, hey, FYI, in this meeting, I would like to raise this. Um, can you just, you know, do me a favor and, you know, bring that idea back in case it gets lost in translation or things like that. So I, I used to have this female colleague who would, you know, if I give an idea and if that idea is dismissed, she would do, she would say this, she would say, that's great, but I would like to revisit what Amelia said earlier on. I thought that was a great idea. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Um, and I also used to have a male colleague who, you know, who, who would do the exact same thing. So I think this kind of system where you try, you know, and find ally or some, someone to help you if you feel too intimidated to do it on your own, that might work as well. Um, so number one, you know, you can stand up for yourself. Number two, find an ally in the workplace to help reinforce what you're saying or to help deal with some of the things or the, or the pushback that you're, you're facing. Idea number three is you could have some kind of support circles. Um, at the workplace um, and you can always brainstorm ideas I have also when um, you know an informal workplace circles and what I do in the circle is basically say things like hey next week I have to present this to this person can you tell me a little bit you know what they're like um, what do what do, what do they like you know what should I include in my presentation are they more like a numbers person or do they like narratives so you know I have people who would give me like tips on how to deal with certain situations and things like that and that support system is also very important ultimately if you know, this is something serious and it hampers your ability to be productive at work. Um, it is something that, you know, that, you know, you, you want to do something more active about it. You can always raise this with your HR and hopefully your HR um, is equipped and trained well enough to be able to deal with this situation. Because unlike other types of wrongdoings at work that are usually investigated through the grievance mechanisms or even the whistleblowing mechanisms, with, um, sorry, microaggression is because it's a lot more subtle. Usually the intervention that, that you know, the HR department would do or the kind of actions or corrective me measures they would do is also a lot more subtle and more on the educational, creating awareness side um, or you know, a bit more restorative justice in that sense. So I think these are some of the things that I have on top of my head that you can do um, if you're facing microaggressions at work. But these ideas are definitely transferable to other settings as well. If you're at home and you have a male figure who do the same thing to you, maybe you can partner out with your sister or with your brother. You know, it's the same thing. You can apply this um, to other areas in your life as well. Well, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. That was such great advice from both um, our speakers, Rizal and M. Like, I never thought of doing those things. Like, I already knew some, but now that the new things that I learned, I feel like me and even our listeners can really take note about that and actually implement it in our lives so we can actually help people or even help ourselves when we encounter that situation. And also to our listeners, like M said, that, uh, you know, our men and feel like they're still new in this area, definitely come in contact with Riza. We'll definitely plug in both of their contacts and where we can even reach out to them later on at the end of this session. Um, next question. So in the fight against microaggression, um, there are challenges to overcome and it can be difficult to make victims feel heard and actually feel safe 
So could any of you elaborate on the challenges for survivors in achieving justice in regards to misconduct behavior, especially in the workplace? So like they can actually relate to us in this, in this topic and actually they feel heard and we understand what it feels like to be. So how about we go with Rizal first? Thanks, Azira. Um, okay. Yeah, on the challenges for someone to actually speak up uh, is, now this is based on my own experience at, um, at my workplaces, at the workplaces that I had the privilege to work in, right? Um, most of the victims, I think we mentioned this um, during the whole session as well, they feel that they're powerless and it's always, like M said, the victim against everyone. So that's the biggest challenge. And um, I think for uh, the advice that M put out just now, to find an ally, actually the first challenge would be, you know, how to trust a person, like who can they trust? So uh, most of the time, what I saw is those victims find it troublesome or even takes a lot of time to, to sort of know who they can trust at the workplace. So that's the one challenge. Um, secondly, uh, especially if it's a gendered work, I mean, if the gender power dynamics at the workplace is, is heavily skewed towards men. So um, this is a workplace that has a lot more men than women. Most of the time it's always, you know, uh, how, to, how to tip that balance, how to make sure that um, the power dynamics can be balanced and women's voices can be heard at the workplace or, or are heard at the workplace. So in order to uh, tip those scales, um, in order to make it more balanced, they always have to find a man who's, uh, who's aware enough uh, to, to be brave and talk to other men about uh, the victim's struggles. Yeah, sorry, I, I'm looking at it from almost a very binary uh, binary way where it's always men against women again. Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's not 100% that way uh, because at certain workplaces where you have uh, men who are not as empowered as other men uh, because the other men thinks that uh, certain men are not as macho as them you know so um, this about um, workplace, my workplace microaggression also happens to these men. Um, so in order to tip those scales, most of the challenge is finding the right ally. Um, and when they found, so for, for example, when they start to gain the, the trust or when they start to trust, um, when the victims start to trust the wrong person, uh, that could even lead to harmful consequences. Um, and that's happened in previous workplace. Uh, but I think in, in those challenges, 
um, I think there, there must be a way to, to sort of uh, uh, overcome those challenges. Uh, going back to your question, Hazira, I think it's mostly on the challenges, right? Yep. Uh, do you want me to elaborate on anything else? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. I definitely agree with your challenges. You know, it's it's actually not easy because like, like both of you said, uh, microaggression is very subtle and it's and it's it's just gaining traction and it, uh, I mean, attraction nowadays. Like we need to tackle mm. this. So it's still in the early stages. So definitely agree with the challenges that you gave. Um, mm. And for, yeah, thank you so much, Rizal. And then M, well, would you like to add in anything? Um, yes, Hazira. I think when we talk about challenges, not just when it comes to microaggression, but when it comes to you know dealing with any kind of violence against women um, and minorities, usually the two biggest types of challenges are either cultural barriers and the second type is structural barriers or organizational barriers. So cultural barriers would include things like, you know, being worried about how people might perceive you, what people will say about you, whether or not they want to be friends with you, whether or not they will stop asking you to join for lunch, whether or not you're not going to be invited to, you know, colleagues hangout. Um, so that's, you know, cultural, um, 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 you know, in the context of the workplace. But of course, that also extends to things like, you know, um, religion um, and, and, you know, your traditions right so for example people might be afraid to speak up or talk about their microaggressions that they face in a situation that might not be 100% halal do you know what I mean so yeah. if a person is in a pub or in a bar drinking and then something happens um, if they work in a very Muslim workplaces they might not feel comfortable saying like oh you know I was in the pub last night and this happened to me right so that's another form of like cultural barriers mm -hmm. um the second one is structural or organizational. So this usually relates to the lack of framework or the processes and procedures that are in the workplace that limits or disempowers a person from, um, you know, correcting or reporting the harm that they have faced. Um, I'm going to share a couple of instances that um, I've either personally faced or um, I've investigated. Um, the first big challenge comes with, again, I have to point it out, how subjective um, microaggression is. And this also comes from the idea that, you know, everyone's boundaries are different. Um, so that makes it harder for, you know, victims who feel like their boundaries have been crossed to speak up. Because in a lot of instances, when a victim speaks up and say, hey, this happens um, this happened to me, I felt very uncomfortable and now I want to report it. Um, there will always be another person who said, well, that happened to me too and I was fine with it. Or there will always be another person that say, I did the same thing to like three other people and none of them complained. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, so that subjectivity. Um, it, it also comes from the lack of understanding on what consent is and how personal the concept of consent is, which is why we never like have a law that would create a boundary for a person, right? It is something that should be decided by a person on a case-to-case -case basis. And I say that because my boundary with person A 
might be completely different with my you know boundary with person B and that's completely fine so I think the challenges when it comes to dealing with the subjectivity of microaggression comes from the lack of understanding on what boundaries are um, on mental health on how things affect different pe people uniquely and things like that that's number one the second big challenge um, that that I realized is the lack of training that you know, people in HR or even bosses, line managers, CEOs, people who are C-suites, um, you know, people who have um, a team reporting to them, right? The fact that they don't receive gender sensitization training, they don't even receive like EQ training or some kind of empathy training that makes them more equipped to deal with the intricacies of dealing with another human being, right? So because they, they're not equipped to deal with the situations a lot of the times they project their values they project their boundaries they project you know their opinion their lived experiences on another person and that's another challenge I, I faced um, previously in one of my investigations before the third one is um the lack of recognition on what microaggression is. So usually when a company comes to me or any kind of organization they say hey um you know we received this kind of um, allegations or this kind of complaints. Um, and we, we would like you to come in and just take a look and maybe give us some recommendations on how things are. I would notice that oftentimes when people report to the grievance or with or the whistleblowing channels, microaggression is actually not listed as as a form of wrongdoing. So when people go to their workplace reporting channels, they would have to pick something else. And this creates another challenge because a microaggression is not sexual harassment. I mean, not necessarily. A microaggression might not be, uh, I don't know, any other form of, of wrongdoing, right? So if it's not listed, um, then people would have to pick something else and they ended up being deterred from, you know, lodging that complaint because they just can't find the right category to, to, to you know, to report this under. And the reason that is because a lot of the times survivors or victims of microaggressions would feel like, um, and this is again speaking from um, a, my experience in investigating one of the cases, survivors in the, the survivor in this situation felt like, oh, you know, I didn't report it because um, the punishment is too harsh. Um, and, you know, what I faced was just like a little thing, you know, um, it's not like I was sexually harassed or anything. I mean, to quote this person, right? So because companies are not sort of like sensitive or they're not aware of like the different types of, um, you know, violence against women which you know microaggression is a is a part of them so they don't have that recognition people can't report under that correct category and they always approach wrongdoings at the workplace in a very black and white way so because things are black and white it's you know there's an objective test for things and the punishment are always too harsh people are suspended or maybe you know they're given a warning letter some people think that's too harsh as well most of the time they just want someone to talk to this person and say don't do that ever again right um so i think all of this the lack of um you know uh, i would say understanding on what microaggression is and therefore that translates into not being able to create frameworks reporting processes, procedures um, at, at the workplace that could actually deal with microaggression that would not deter 
you know, victims from reporting either because they feel like they are not going to be taken seriously or on the other end, they feel like everything offered to them is just too harsh and they wanted something that could deal with just, you know, it could, maybe they just want like a verbal warning um, in a very informal way from one boss to another boss and be like, hey, come on, don't say that. That's not cool, you know, in a casual way, right? So I think all of these things, in my experience, have been a challenge when it comes to dealing with microaggressions. Um, this leads to people saying like, oh, come on, it's not a big deal. It's not like, you know, it's some form of like sexual harassment or sexual assault or things like that, right? I mean, of course this happens because if you report sexual harassment, someone's going to say, well, it's not that serious. It's not like it's sexual assault. People will always say that. But I feel like if we are not able to properly categorize and deal with things on a case-by-case basis and allow room for you know, this gray area to be discussed by listening to the victims, by using a victim-centric process, then ultimately it would create an environment that would make it easier for things like this to be addressed in the workplace. Yes, uh, I love how you um, elaborated those challenges and even gave experiences and even examples that you've encountered or you know you knew. Thank you for tuning to our part one of the fifth episode of Yunamu podcast series. Make sure to tune in to part two coming soon. For more info about our next episode of podcast series and our other exciting events, do follow us on Instagram at yuna.malaysia and visit our Facebook, United Nations Association of Malaysia.